Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Thursday, April 18th, 2019. Fraud is a many splendid thing if you can prove it. But you can't prove it unless you get past a motion to dismiss. And you won't get past a motion to dismiss or a demurrer, depending on the state that you're in, without a clear and convincing recitation of fact that shows the court that you have allegations which if proven, mean that fraud, as it is legally defined, that fraud occurred and that you should be compensated for it. I also want to remind you of what I said last week about the 11th Circuit Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that emotional distress damages and punitive damages can be recovered by mortgage borrowers under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So you have the FDCPA, RESPA, Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, Truth in Lending, and the FRCA, all with potential damage claims and all possible counts in a lawsuit or in affirmative defenses for recoupment to offset the lawsuit that's brought for foreclosure. The same is true for fraud claims, which can also be alleged as an affirmative defense in recruitment and potentially avoid the application of the statute of limitations. You better check with local counsel on how that applies in your state. Damages in recruitment are only available up to the value of the claim asserted against you, but in most cases, that is really all that homeowners want to get rid of the foreclosure or reduce it to a fraction of what was claimed. Most homeowners are not into defense for profit. And lastly, I have an article coming out about this. Bruce Jacobs, an attorney in Miami, has once again nailed U.S. Bank, which is now facing an order to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt. Jacobs asked for documents the bank should have had if they were an actual claimant with an actual claim. Of course, U.S. Bank virtually never has an actual claim, and so it's never a true claimant. It appears as a ghost, as, quote, trustee, end quote. Jacobs persisted when they refused to respond to discovery. He filed a motion to compel. The judge 
entered an order compelling U.S. Bank to deliver what, of course, they didn't have. The bank couldn't defend with the fact that it didn't have such documents because that would be admitting to not having a claim in the first place. So the foreclosure mill lawyers, who probably never had any contact with anyone from U.S. Bank, even though they were claiming that U.S. Bank was their client, they, the foreclosure mill lawyers just stole, stonewalled. And they did this because it works. Most foreclosure defense lawyers and pro se litigants give up if they still don't get the discovery because, in truth, they think the documents exist, but they don't. And Jacobs knew that, so he filed a motion for sanctions, which was also granted. But then the judge changed that to an order to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt, and that's going to be an evidentiary hearing. And that demonstrates what I've been saying for 13 years. To beat the bank, you must be willing to go the distance and not give up. To win, you must understand that the bank is not a real claimant and that there is no claim, and therefore... There are no documents to back up the claim except those that have been fabricated, forged, backdated, and robo-signed. Which brings us back to tonight's subject, pleading and proving fraud. Remember, you can always come back and listen to the show again or send it to a friend by sending the link by going to blogtalkradio.com and looking up the Neil Garfield Show. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you for those of you who have contributed, and for those of you who are not yet contributors, please hit the donate button on the blog, livinglies.wordpress.com. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If what I'm doing here has value, if what we're all doing on the Living Lives team has value for you, if I work on the blog and the radio shows, which comes without payment or any other support, has value to you, then chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Fraud can be a very effective claim or defense. But it is not an easy claim or defense. Fraud must be both pled and proven clearly and convincingly. Not enough to show that its probability is more than 50-50. Not enough to imply fraud when you're pleading. You've got to be specific and you've got to be clear, and you've got to be convincing. Some view the burden of pleading and proof as unfair when compared to a claim for foreclosure, which only has the burden of proof that requires that it is more likely than not that the claimant is real and the, and the claimant has a real claim entitling the claimant to a remedy. But that is a philosophical argument. The question is not what should be, it's what is. If fraud is used as a defense, the damages are limited to the amount of the foreclosure claim. If it is used as a counterclaim or in a separate lawsuit, then the statute of limitations is probably going to be an issue because 
the fraud or the beginning of it most likely occurred many years before. But the counter-arguments to application of the statute of limitations are active concealment of the truth and continued misrepresentation and then maturation of the claim, which might not accrue until the foreclosure is decided against the borrower, which then produces the damages. I think the only real valid argument is active concealment, but depending upon which state you're in, the statute of limitations may not be applicable if fraud is alleged as an affirmative defense in recoupment. The pleading and proof requirements for fraud in all circumstances are very rigorous. Knowing how to plead and wording the complaint or defense properly is essential to getting fraud on the table in litigation, which, by the way, opens the door to discovery, interrogatories, requests to produce, requests for admission, discovery that might not otherwise be allowed if you were merely defending the foreclosure on other grounds. That said, a successful action or defense for fraud, or a successful claim for fraud in a lawsuit, has a high likelihood of achieving a significant verdict for compensatory and punitive damages, or potentially punitive damages. Compensatory for sure, and now we know that for sure includes uh, emotional distress damages. So these often will go up into six figures, seven figures, and I think it is likely to see some verdicts well into eight figures as people become more sophisticated on how to attack a ghost claimant. This is where there's often conflict between lay people who think they know what fraud is and lawyers who know that in order to successfully defend with fraud or prosecute a claim for fraud, they must satisfy the, uh, the required elements of fraud. So, someone tells a lie. Is that fraud? No not without the rest of the elements. A lie is not actionable in and of itself. Did anyone hear the lie? There's one element. If nobody heard it, then there is no case. If someone did hear the lie, you can proceed with the other elements. What was the lie? When was it communicated? How was it communicated? And to whom? If you can't specify those things, you have no fraud claim. That's pretty well settled. What part of the representation or statement was untrue? Usually, a fraud case involves a lie that's embedded in other information, which is at least partially true. So, for example, if U.S. Bank claims to be a national association, that's probably true. If it claims to be a trustee, that's probably untrue. 
because it has no powers of a trustee, and the entity for which it impliedly is the trustee for probably doesn't exist, and if it does exist, it still doesn't own the debt note or mortgage. How do you know that the representation was untrue? When did you find out it was untrue? When should you have found out that it was untrue? So far, you still don't have a fraud claim alleged. You may think you do, but you don't. And so you won't be able to pursue it without a, a complaint that satisfies all the required elements of a fraud defense or claim. Even though on a lay basis, you think you've already done it. But wishing doesn't make it so. Did the party who made the statement or representation know that it was false, untrue? How do you know that? Was it just sales puffery, or was it something designed to make you do something or not do something that they knew would result in your demise or detriment? How do you know that? If you are pleading fraud upon the court, be careful not to make it a claim of the court because that would mean the whatever court it was that you said it was defrauded would have to be the plaintiff and you want to so you want to maintain it as a claim of the homeowner so you can allege that there was fraud upon the court resulting in a foreclosure being filed or even completed but I think you also need the element of fraud uh, as being specifically directed to the homeowner or the borrower, which is tricky when you get to the element of reasonable reliance. Did you actually rely on the lie? If you didn't, there's no fraud claim. So no matter how bold-faced the lie, no matter how evil the party was who, who told the lie, if you didn't rely on a specific lie, then you haven't satisfied the reasonable reliance element of fraud. Did you reasonably rely on the, on the lie? If you shouldn't have relied on it, which is based on a reasonable man standard, then there is no fraud claim. The fact that you relied on it when a reasonable person would not have relied on it means that at trial, if that's the finding, you're going to lose. You might be able to get past a motion to dismiss by pleading reasonable reliance and alleging some facts 
that show why you had reason to rely. But at trial, if they show that you shouldn't have relied on it because of some other knowledge that you had or because some other knowledge that was general information, then there's probably no fraud claim. It could be claims for negligence, by the way, and even negligent misrepresentation. Um, and, of course, when you plead negligence, you may well be able to decrease the burden of proof from clear and convincing evidence down to a preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely than not, which is just over 50-50. Did you suffer some sort of legally recognizable damage as a result of your reasonable belief that the lie was a true statement instead of a false statement? So you have to show that but for the lie, you would not have had the financial loss that you say or the emotional distress damage that you say you had. The fact that you had the damage and the fact that they lied do not necessarily mean that the causation is automatically satisfied. It's possible, and in fact it happens in almost every case, where both parties are lying to some extent or not telling exactly the truth because of memory problems or intentional lying or whatever. The, the issue here is whether or not you can show that you wouldn't have had that emotional distress, you wouldn't have suffered these financial losses or expenses or what have you, but for the fact that they lied. And don't forget, a lie could also be an implied misrepresentation that and often does, which misleads people because of its context. So you have to get into the weeds on that one. How are you going to prove your damages? You have to think about that in advance because you have to name by category your damages and maybe add a few ultimate facts upon which relief could be granted about those damages. Otherwise, you're not going to survive a motion to dismiss. You don't survive a motion to dismiss, you're out of court. So, for example, you might want to say that the filing of a void assignment of mortgage was a lie, and if you've been reading my blog and listening to the show, you would know that in most cases, the filing of a void assignment of mortgage is a lie, and you'd be right. But so far, you have not alleged fraud. You must 
specifically identify the statements, which can include conduct, that were the statements that were untrue and were known by the parties who prepared, executed, and recorded the assignment to be untrue. And notice what I just did there. Lawyers probably picked it up. Lay people went right over your head. There are three separate steps in what I just said, prepared, executed, and recorded the assignment. Preparation, which we all know in, in connection with foreclosures, is most probably fabrication. Execution, we all know, is probably forgery and robo-signing. And recording, we all know as utterance of a false instrument with probably defective, <coughs> excuse me, notary or witnesses for those states that require a witness. But the actual parties who performed each of those functions is different under the current bank schemes. And the bank who wrote it is nowhere to be seen in the paperwork. So the actual miscreant who committed the fraud did it through several layers of intermediaries, each of whom will be blamed by the bank as having committed an error that the bank didn't know about and the, therefore concluding that the bank was not part of a fraudulent scheme. That leads me to my final conclusion. I think it's high time that the investment banks were sued, including individuals in the investment bank that put this scheme in motion. Again, let me remind you about the statute of limitations. Let me also remind you that there's a thing called litigation privilege to the extent that any of your action is based upon statements made in court. The investment bank is the one who indisputably had actual knowledge of all the moving parts of the fraudulent scheme that they call securitization, but which in fact was an illegal scheme to collect money from investors, collect name signatures and reputations of borrowers, and profit by trading on the money of investors and the reputation of borrowers without any disclosure of what they were doing and contrary to the intent of both the investors and the borrowers and of course contrary to law. So the act of filing a void assignment of mortgage in favor of a trustee who has no trustee powers for a trust that doesn't exist without the transfer of the debt which has long since been sold to third parties by the investment bank to third-party investors in the shadow banking market is a cover-up for the initial fraud related to the origination or acquisition of the debt and a cover-up for the initial fraud of selling certificates in the name of a trust that didn't actually exist. Each assignment was a representation that the loan had been transferred, but the parties all knew there was no transaction in which the debt was purchased because there was no debt in their chain. 
everybody knew except the borrower and the court who relied upon the facial validity of instruments to arrive at factual and legal conclusions that were contrary to actual facts because of legal presumptions advanced by the lawyers for a claimant who in some cases did not even exist, much less possess a claim. They knew that they were misleading the court and the borrower and the court, neither the court nor the borrower had any grasp of how they were being misled. They knew that their goal was to get a foreclosure sale, knowing full well that they possessed no claim to that remedy, no legal claim to that remedy, nor any other claim for collection of any debt due from the borrower. And they blocked and concealed the borrower's access to the true owners of the risk of loss that should have been available to borrowers under state and federal laws to negotiate settlements and modifications. So as soon as the borrower signed their name, they basically signed their way, uh, signed away any possibility, not their right, but any possibility of actually having, being able to talk to a creditor that owned their debt, whether it was the originator or whoever. They knew they were throwing families out of their homes, and they knew they had no right to do so. The investment bank knew that it had sold the debt many times over to investors in the shadow banking market, in addition to the initial sales to the initial investors who purchased the initial certificates. Do you need to prove and allege all that? No. You only need to say that the assignment or even the loan documents themselves, if the facts permit it, contain lies upon which you and eventually the court relied to your detriment. And specifically, that the assignment was a representation of a transaction that the parties knew had never taken place. And that is the purchase and sale of the debt and that at the time of the foreclosure, none of the entities involved in the foreclosure had any interest in the debt, nor did they expect to receive money from the sale of the property if the foreclosure was successful. That one is very hard for both foreclosure defense lawyers and borrowers to even wrap their heads around. Yes, these, these parties will not see the proceeds of the sale of the house, and yet they're bringing the claim. That is where the investment bank comes in because it is the investment bank who actually receives the proceeds of foreclosure, which is why it's not apparent on its face, but if you actually trace the money, you'll see that that's so. It's the investment bank who receives the, the, the proceeds of a foreclosure sale and that's why you often see something called an assignment of bid after judgment. The investment bank is submitting through layers of intermediaries an illegal credit bid, which is a presentation that it owns the debt and that the sale of the house will be used to pay down the debt. It won't, and the parties all know that. 
the investment bank especially knows it because it knows that it sold off all the risk of loss many times over. By many times over, I mean they got more money than, than the amount of the loan. How much detail you choose to plead is a matter of style and strategy. But unlike other fraud requires a much higher pleading and proof standard than most other claims. Go to the books, read the statutes, read the case law, and then start pleading and preparing your discovery, which probably ought to be served with the complaint. Thank you for joining me. I'll be back with you next week. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.